0: Our scripture reading for this morning is from Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, With the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother, Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked in the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, It desires to have you, but you must master it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. if anyone kills Cain, he will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This is God's word.
1: For the past uh, week, we've been looking at well, we've started a new summer series, and we call it what it means to be a Christian. And uh, what that means is that the Bible has a way of articulating themes that capture the foundational truths about the Christian life. There's a language for all these things. There's a language that explains truths about grace, about God's love, about faith. And today, we're going to be looking into the Bible's language for explaining the human condition. And the Bible calls it sin. And so this text explains what it means to be a sinner. There are three things that we're going to be learning today. One, the hiddenness of sin. Two, the power of sin. And three, our victory over sin. The hiddenness of sin, the power of sin, and the victory over sin. First, we're going to look at the hiddenness of sin. Sin is of the heart. Sin is of the heart. And so we have to recognize it. We have to identify it. We see this in the first six or seven verses. You see, Cain... And Abel, on the outside, they were very similar. They were brothers. They were similar. They were both trying to obey God. They both worshipped God. They both gave him offerings. They both appear to have a relationship with God. In fact, you see Cain, he's speaking with God. He's talking to God. On the outside, both of them appear to be okay, but something is going on very differently inside Cain. Now, this is not a narrative where one person is living a really wild life and the other person is living a very religious life. This is not one of those uh, types of narratives. Um, the only difference between the two, at least that we see in this text, is what? Cain is a farmer and Abel is a herder. We have a farmer and a herder. Both of them offer their incomes to God, but God chose to bless Abel. And he didn't favor Cain. It says he didn't favor Cain. Why? Now, you have to look at this. Cain and Abel, they both live in an agrarian society, and uh, that means that your wealth was largely based on what you grew or what you raised. And so your capital income is based on the growth of your crops, the birth of new animals. That's what you had to determine your wealth. So if you had 10 new animals that were born in one year, a tithe would be what? One of those animals, in a way. But the text says here that Cain gave from his crops. Now, you have to think about this. Uh, Cain gave from his crops. If you raise crops and animals, there's there's several ways of tithing. One way that you tithe is you take an inventory of everything that you have in a week. You take an inventory of everything that you make in a year, and you tithe. You take 10% of that, and you give it to the Lord. That's considered a very uh, reasonable way of tithing. But Abel gave from his firstborn. Now, you have to think about this. If you give of your firstborn, that means you're giving regardless what the rest of your year looks like. For instance, if you give of your firstborn, but you only have two animals that year, you've actually tithed 50%. Some people are very, very shrewd with God Very, very calculating with God, while other people, they're giving with joy, and they're giving with gratitude, and they're giving with trust, and they're giving with abandon. Why do they do this? Hebrews chapter 11 says, Abel gave a better sacrifice to God by faith. What does that mean? Cain had faith in God. He was actually talking with God in this passage. He was praying, so to speak, right? But Abel... He gave by faith because he trusted God, because he trusted his promises. He had a relationship with God. He had faith. We don't know how wide or big or how large or small it was, but he was living in line with whatever he knew about God. And that was enough to give with gratitude. It was enough to give birth to joy and to make God a priority, to trust God. Think about this. The reason for giving it all is either two things. One of two things. One, you either give in response to the promise of salvation or you give as a means to salvation. You give because you are saved, or you give in order to become saved, to feel as if you're saved. You either give because you're thankful, or you're giving because you're trying to earn it. Cain's working hard to earn it. So when he gave, and he gave shrewdly, when he gave, uh, he felt like he deserved it. He felt like he was entitled to it. But Abel, he gave out of gratitude. He gave out of joy. He gave out of a relationship. And so when he gave, it made him humbler. Cain grew more entitled. You see this because when he didn't get the results, when he didn't get the responses that he wanted from God, it made him feel entitled. It made him feel angry. It made him feel all the more deserving. But Abel, he gave humbly. He gave out of gratitude. They're both doing God's will. Both of them are obeying. We'll have to see this. Both of them are obeying. But what is at each person's foundational trust? What is at the heart of their foundational trust in God? What is their motivational center? Why do we get jealous? Why do we get jealous of other people? We get angry. Why do we get angry when other people are getting ahead of us? It's because it reveals what we're angry about, reveals what we love. Cain King, all Cain's in the world, they always hate Abels. Why? Cain say, I worked hard for this. I try, I honor God in all the ways that I can. I worship God in every way that I can. I give to God in every way that I can. When people like Cain see other people getting blessed ahead of them, in fact, getting blessed more than them, they get angry. Why? It's because your obedience is contingent on your self-fulfillment. So when you feel fulfilled, you feel as if God is blessing you. When you're unfulfilled, you feel as God is passing over you. These, the, you know, there are people here, right now in this room, that want to experience the thrill of being a Christian. They want to experience the thrill of Christian joy, the richness of Christian community, the benefits of the church, and yet they haven't given themselves wholly, completely in faith. They're hiding from the call of being a Christian. You want the thrill of Christianity. You want the thrill of being in Christ. You want the thrill of Christian community, but you haven't really confronted the call of being a christian being set apart for god and so you look at abel's in your life and we compare ourselves to abel's and we feel inferior and we get angry and we get resentful what verses one to six are telling us about sin is this that sin is a secret sin is deeply hidden sin is subtle Sin is subterranean. Sin is under the skin. Sin distorts even the good things that we do, the, the, all of our motivations for it, and it's very, very deep. Now, look at God. God tells Cain, verse 7, he says, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. What God is saying is, sin is crouching at your door. If you, it's the image of this predatory animal that's lurking in the shadows ready to pounce on you. When you're not suspecting it, it's ready to pounce on you. In other words, sin is subtle, sin is hidden, sin is hidden, but it's deadly. It can kill you. It's deadly because it's hidden. God says you must master it. God's saying sin is like a tumor. It begins undetectable. It begins unrecognizable, but it's still there And if you don't diagnose it, it begins to grow in your life, it begins to expand in your life, it it begins to take over your life. Sometimes sin, it actually presents itself as something good, and that something good slowly becomes twisted and corroded, and what happens is little by little, you start to corrode, you start to get overtaken by sin. God says you must master it. How do you apply this? You can't just rationalize, you're overworking. We live in a culture, in a world, in a society that's built on overworking, overworking productivity. Don't just rationalize your overworking by calling it diligence, by calling it a strong worth ethic. Don't just rationalize your reliance on your figure, your good figure, your beauty, your looks, by saying, I just want to live healthily. Don't just overlook your obsession with your salary or other people's salaries for that matter, right? Your position or other people's position, Because you just want to be excellent in your calling. There's usually something more in all these things that we're obsessed with. Any obsession, any predisposition, there's usually some sort of obsession. There's usually something more, something deeper. We want to be acceptable. Sin is hidden. It's usually something more to our obsession than you know what 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 we want with our work, what we want with our looks, what we want with our salaries, and these things. These things actually become our currency. What is a currency? It's your measure of worth. These things become our currency. It becomes how we measure ourselves. That's comparisons with other people. It becomes how we measure other people with respect to ourselves. It's comparisons with other people. This is the hiddenness of sin. It's why we're always anxious when we're we're risking losing things that define us. It's why we're always angry when these things are taken away. It's why we always despair once we've lost them, once they're gone. It's the hiddenness. This is the hiddenness of sin. Now, the second thing we learn here is the power of sin. In verse 7, God says, sin is abiding in you. And if you don't deal with it, it's going to start to grow. It's going to take shape. It's going to overtake you. Then it's going to corrode you. And then it's going to consume you. At first, sin is crouching. You don't even see it. You don't even recognize it. It's formless. It's in the shadows. But it's inevitable because if you, uh, if you do not address sin, one day it's going to begin to take shape. It's going to start to have a form. It's going to actually start to look like something. Other people are going to start to see it. And then it desires to have you. God says you have to master it because if it doesn't master it, it will master you and it will grow. And eventually it's no longer just on the inside It starts to bubble up, unravel into your outside, take shape on the outside, pounce on you, arrest you, capture you, corrode you, devour you. Think about this. If you see an animal, and the animal is crouching, and there's no gateway between you and that animal. It's right there in the shadows, crouching. The first thing you're going to do, first of all, if you don't recognize the animal, you're going to become food. You're going to get consumed. But if you recognize it, the first thing you're going to do instinctively is what? You're going to run. You're going to run away. If you don't recognize it, you're going to become food. You're going to become consumed. The less you see, the less you're aware of the location of potential sins in your life. Specific sins. We're not talking about sin in general. Specific sins in your life. The less that you're able to admit them, the more you're able to rationalize them. The more you're going to get defensive about them. And you're never going to learn from them you're never going to grow. You're never going to change. And one day, sin is going to stop crouching. It's going to actually pounce. If you don't address, I'm, I'm trying, to, I'm a pastor, but I'm going to speak to you like a father, okay, a little bit. Let me speak to you like a father just a little bit. If you don't address the sin patterns in your life, in your teenage years, you might survive. You're going to make some mistakes. Some of them may be big. Some of them may be irrevocable. But by and large, you're going to survive. By and large, you're going to get over these things. You're going to get through these things. If you let those sin patterns remain in your 20s, remember, I'm speaking to you as a father, okay? If you let these sin patterns remain in you through your 20s, what happens is it, it starts getting harder to shake. And what happens is it's going to start to grow because the damage is going to start to grow. You might lose some big relationships in your life. You might lose family members in your life. You might lose, you might lose big But it's your 20s. And so you might be able to survive. You may get through this. You let these sin patterns go unaddressed into your 30s, into your 40s. It's lights out. You're going to lose everything. Do you see that? Because once sin takes over, and we're not talking about grandiose sins. I'm talking about little things that start with pride. I'm talking about little things that start with the defensive core of our hearts. I'm talking about that little addiction that you figure you're just going to get over like everybody else. These things will have such a grip, such a hold in your life. It's going to become more and more of who you are. It's going to become your identity. It's going to be how everybody else identifies you over time. Let it go into your 30s. Let it go into your 40s. Don't let it go into your 30s. Don't let it go into your 40s. Okay, but let it go into your 30s. Let it go into your 40s. It's going to have such a hold into your life. You're going to become less and less of who you once were. You're going to become less and less of what you were designed to be. Do you see that? Sin has a way of making you less by promising you, you can be more. And it's going to corrode and eat away at you. Sin dehumanizes. That's what it does. It corrodes you. It destroys you little by little. The tumor starts to grow and takes over your body, takes over your soul. It wants to have you, wants to devour you until there's nothing left of you. You know, Cain didn't just wake up one day and say, I think I'll kill my brother today. That's not what happened. That's not what happened to Cain. Sin begins hidden, and then it unveils itself. And, you know, we're not really sure how God showed favor to Abel. We don't know. We don't know if Abel got richer than Cain. We don't know. We don't know if Abel got more successful than Cain. We don't know. But it must have been visible. Cain must have seen it. He must have recognized it. He must have seen the difference. And he felt disrespected. He felt dishonored. And you know this because, and here's the clue the clue is in their names. The word Abel, when you kind of strip it down to its bare parts, the word Abel means worthless. Abel was a loser. The word Abel means worthless. While the word Cain, guess what it means? It means winner, it means successful. Abel was the loser. Cain was the winner. But God always has his eye on the losers of the world. And so he has his eye on Abel, the weaker one, the loser. And most likely, this grew a very deep envy inside Cain, not because Cain was a loser but because he was the success he's saying I'm the successful one I'm the one that deserves favor look at my work look at everything I touch turns to gold everything I do is successful everything I do is accomplished I'm the one that should have favor why is this loser getting the favor why is this loser getting the attention why is this loser getting your love I'm the one that's working hard I'm the one with the work ethic I'm the elder son I'm the one that the family puts all of their value and worth in, in that culture. You see that? A very, very deep envy grew in Cain. And most likely, Cain relied on his success, and so he couldn't stand the idea. He couldn't stand the thought of losing to his brother, a loser. But Abel was the one that was valued by God. He was the one that was valued by God, and this overtook Cain. Now, Cain didn't understand that God always looks to the weaker, What's an application for you right there? you got to be weak. Even if you have a lot, do you see yourself as a weak person? Do you, are you able to look into your deep core brokenness, the subterranean sins that are eating away at you, driving and changing even the good things about your life, even the good things in your life, even the good things about your character? Do you see that? So Cain didn't understand that. He didn't see that God always looks to the weaker. He always favors the loser. He always loves the unworthy. He didn't understand that everything that even he had is by God's sheer grace. Everything that we have, do you see that? You know what makes us humble? When you are able to confess in the heart that all of your hard work, we're just saying that, right? Not the labors of my hands can fulfill your law's demands. You see that? When you can profess that, when you can confess that deep in the heart to the level that it hits the soul and know that all my accomplishments, the sum of all of my value on earth, that number one, I didn't think about all the things that got you to where you are, your intelligence. Do you think you acquired that? Do you think you created that? Most studies show that most of our intelligence comes from something that was given to us by our parents. Even your intelligence, your looks, Your personalities you acquire over the course of time, your charming personalities, but the thing is it's a combination of all these things, most of which God has given you by grace, sheer grace, sheer grace alone. You see that? Cain didn't understand that, and so his world fell apart. It led him to murder. And this is why sin is not just an irrational act. It's not just something that happened. We say, oh, I'm sorry, it just happened. It didn't just happen. It's definitely not an accident. You know what an accident is? An accident is when you bump into somebody and you spill their drink on them. That's an accident. You see, this is not an accident. And it's most certainly not a result of bad upbringing or an environment. Why? Because you have Cain and and Abel brought up in the same home. It's not uh, a, a, a result of bad education, bad culture. It's a power. And that power lives in us. That power abides in us. We need to master it. That's what God says. How do you master it? You see, the hiddenness of sin, most of the time, we don't recognize the sin until the great disaster has started to take over in our lives. Most of us. We, st- we usually tend to ignore it. It's the, it's the brokenness of our hearts. We want to ignore these things that we know are true. We do that in many, many ways. We avoid people, we avoid what they say about us. We don't want to confront these things. We get angry, we get defensive. You've got to plug into community. I tell you, Christian community, there's no greater benefit of the church than the grace of Christian community. Plug into, if you haven't plugged into a community group, plug into a community group. Get to know other brothers and sisters in your church that can get close enough and get deep enough with you to challenge you with respect to your sin. They are not doing you a disservice. They're doing you a service. You see that? You need to master it. How do we master? What's our victory over sin? What do we learn about God? We talked a lot about Cain. We talked a lot about Abel in this text. What do we learn about God in this text? Verse 6, look at the gentleness of God first. Notice he doesn't accuse. Notice God doesn't approach Cain and say, I know what you're about to do, you miserable fool. First of all, you only give me crops, okay? I'm a carnivore. You know, that's not what God says, right? That's not what he says here, right? Right? He gently initiates with Cain. Cain, his life starts to spiral downward, and God approaches him in a very personal way, and he reasons with Cain. He says, Cain, why are you angry? Does that sound like somebody who's, who's about to hammer him? He says, Cain, why are you angry? And then like a father, not like a preacher, not like a pastor, like a father, he says, I know you, Cain. And you know, sin is right there with you. You can only say that when you know somebody. He says, I know you, Cain. Sin is right there with you. But I want you to be able to master this. I want you to be able to overpower this. He says, I see you. I'm hurting for you. I I see where you are. I want you to be able to master this. He's encouraging Cain. He's strengthening Cain. The next time you're angry at anything, it could have been this morning, the next time you're angry at anything, take a moment. Think about why you're unhappy. usually because we're not getting what we want. There's usually something that's in the way of getting what we want at that moment. You say, I'm not getting what I want, when I want, how I want it, and you're angry because you tried hard. You tried hard to get it, and you didn't get it. Consider a God right there, right there. He's not at the end of some 911 hotline. He's right there with you, and he's gently leading you, and he's gently teaching you, and he's questioning you. He's counseling you. He's saying, I want you to turn from this. I want you to look at your anger. It's distorting you. It's already, look at your face. You're angry. It's distorting. It's contorting you already. And that's a disposition of the heart. It's going to contort your heart. I don't want it to fix you. I don't want it to fix in you. I want you to be able to master this. Look at the gentleness of God. You've got to recognize the demands that you're making. You've got to own up to your disposition. You've got to study yourself. You got to ask God for help. It's the hardest thing to do because we think it's so trite. But the thing is, it's so important. You got to ask God for help. You got to you got to pray. Uh, you got to pray that this enemy will not overtake you. This enemy of sin will not overtake you. you can, it's ready to pounce. It's ready to devour you. Do you see that? Do you see the? Do you see the criticality of that? Do you see the the vital need for us to go to God and help for help? And you got to look to God's gentle voice. And it's always a gentle voice. It's always a humble voice. The second thing we've got to do is you've got to look at God's counsel. You've got to listen to God's counsel. Think about this. When God asks questions of Cain in this text, just like a few chapters back or a chapter back, he asked questions of Adam, and oftentimes in our own hearts he's asking questions of us. When he's asking questions, you have to be assured he's not trying to figure you out. God has you figured out. He's not trying to figure out who you are or why you're doing or why you are where you are. He's trying to get you to understand where you are. He's trying to get you to understand yourself. He's trying to get you. He's trying to unpackage the complexity of your own heart. In verse six, he asks Cain, why has your face fallen? Why have you fallen apart? Why are you downcast? Why are you depressed? But look at his tenderness. Look at the tenderness of God. He doesn't say, because Cain, you're okay. He doesn't say, Cain, why are you so angry? You're so lovable. You're lovable too. You're going to be fine. That's not what he says. He says, I want you to be aware of your sinfulness. He says, sin can get you. It can master you, but I don't want it to master you. That's what he says. Look at the tenderness of God. Look at the wisdom of God. Look at the courage of God. He doesn't smooth over things with Cain. In that very passive, aggressive society, he did, much like our society today, he doesn't smooth things over with Cain. He addresses it. He confronts him head on. Nevertheless, Cain, he lacks this inner sense of security, this inner sense of assurance in the love of God. So what does he do? He murders Abel. He strikes Abel. He murders Abel. And look at God. He's still counseling Cain. Verse 9, where is your brother? It's not because he doesn't know. He knows, right? You know that in le- le- next verse, verse 10. What have you done? And then he says something amazing. Your brother's blood cries out to me. That's what he says. No one knew. No one knew what Cain did. Abel's blood, Abel's blood just covered the ground. It was absorbed by the ground. Crying out to God, God says, but this is a major theme in the Bible, God knew. He says, your brother's blood is crying out to me. What he's saying is, I knew, I see, and I know. God is saying, all that secret hate in your heart, all that secret plotting in your heart, all that secret bloodshed in your heart, all that injustice in your heart, all of your self-justifying, all of your running from me, I see you. I see you, and I know you. That's what he's saying. And yet, he says it gently. He says it with tenderness. But he says, I may be, he says says it tenderly. He says it with gentleness, but he says, your brother, his blood cries out to me. What he's saying is, I may be gentle, Cain, but I'm also just, and I see it all. All these wrongs. They cry out to me every day, all these injustices. They cry out to me every day. It's by sheer grace that right now, everybody in this room has an opportunity to turn from sin because one day there won't be an opportunity. Even that is by grace, common grace. Even that is by grace. What is our only hope in this grace? What is our only hope? Centuries later, another man arrived, another son. He was a lot like Abel. He honored God like Abel, except he was better than Abel. He honored God 100%, fully. He loved God just like Abel. He loved God, but he was even greater than Abel. He loved God even greater, even better than Abel, 100%, holy. He worshiped God 100%, eternally. He obeyed God 100%, perfectly. He made an offering to God. Abel gave of his firstborn Jesus Christ also because he gave himself. He tied 100%. He tied with his body and he tied with his blood even better than Abel. Jesus Christ was greater Cain. He was the true firstborn to whom Abel looked to by faith. You know what that means? Abel did what he did, but it was only provisional. He knew it was only a provision. It was a provision for the greater older brother. His older brother, his earthly older brother, was horrible. He killed him. But he was looking to a greater older brother who would redeem him and be killed
0: for him.
1: He knew he couldn't rely on Cain to redeem him, and so he looked to Christ by faith, and we, you and I, have that same exact power and resource and provision, except we have it even greater. We have it to the fullest extent. Jesus Christ came to a world filled with canes people who lived religiously right lives he walked right into the synagogue Right into the synagogue of his life for that matter, surrounded by people who lived in religiously right lives, the successful people, the, the the winners of the world. They were the kings, they were the leaders, they were the teachers of the law, they were the Pharisees, they honored their sacrifices, they offered their tithes, they worked very, very hard for God's favor. But when they saw Jesus, it made them feel so inferior that they killed him. They arrested him, they captured him, they crucified him on the cross. And when his blood was shed, Hebrews chapter, the author of Hebrews, chapter 12, he says this. He mentions that the shed blood of Jesus speaks more graciously than the blood of Abel. In other words, Jesus Christ died for our sins. Jesus Christ died for our injustices. Not just to give us a model for forgiveness. Not just to give us a model of righteousness but to become our substitute of forgiveness, substitute for righteousness. And when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, I am the greater Abel. I'm the one who's truly innocent, greater than Abel, worshiped greater than Abel, sacrificed greater than Abel. Cain gave his crops. Abel gave his livestock. All of that was provisional. Jesus Christ, he's saying, I am tithing right now on the cross. I am tithing my body and my blood. I'm tithing my body and my blood. In fact, if you read the book of Hebrews, they describe very intricately what the high priest is doing with his sacrifice and that is exactly what Jesus is doing on the cross. He's following that to the T. He's saying, I'm offering the ultimate perfect sacrifice once and for all as the ultimate provision for our sins. But do you know he was receiving it as a punishment? The perfect son the perfect offering, the perfect love, the perfect worship, and yet Jesus Christ received the punishment that the Cains of the world received, deserved. And so when he says, I am being forsaken, Cain, he was cast out. Cain was cast out. He says, I am forsaken. Like Cain, I am being cast out. I am guilty and I am condemned. Why? So that you would not stand guilty. So that we would not stand condemned. And do you know this? Do you know that he did this the entire time? It wasn't like he was on the cross. And Jesus is saying, oh, I'm so consumed by this pain. I'm so consumed by this hurt. And all these people, they're they're crying out to me and they're hurling insults at me and they're mocking me and they're spinning me. Oh, I'm crying out. I'm in so much pain and and this is so horrible and and God is forsaking me and this this makes me feel so bad. Do you know he was reciting? He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's reciting the very words of Psalm 22. Jesus Christ, receiving the punishment for our sins, was worshiping still on the cross. That is the perfect sacrifice. That is the perfect worship and sacrifice. Do you see that? The canes of the world were ripping him apart, murdering Jesus If you're living a life always trying to please God with your perfect record, always trying to please God with your works, do you get it? You're still Cain. You're living like Cain. And there's never going to be any joy, not ultimately. And there's never going to be any assurance. So you're always going to be spending your life looking at what other people are receiving apart from you. Do you see that? You're never going to live up And you're never gonna experience, even if it feels successful, you're never gonna experience the embrace of God. What God gives you just out of his sheer delight in you. You're never gonna experience that. You're gonna never experience that love, not that embrace. But look at the cross. On one hand, God doesn't just let sin go. That's why the cross is amazing, but the cross stands as more than just a symbol. When you look at the cross, on one hand, God does not just let sin go. He is a just God. The blood of our brothers cries out, and he's saying he sees it all. And the cross is our, when you look at the cross, you know God is a just God. Abel's blood is crying out for justice. Jesus' blood is crying out for justice as well, and that justice is paid on the cross. So how are we saved? 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. You see this in your word of encouragement. That our God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. It doesn't say, you know, you've committed your sins. If if you confess your sins, God is faithful to forgive your sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's not what it says. It says God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In other words, Jesus' blood cries out for justice, but it cries out for justice that forgives. It cries out for a justice that forgives. Because he died to cover over our sins with his blood. He died to forbear our sins on the cross. And in union with him, together with him, bound to him, united with him, we are made righteous, just like his son, just like God's firstborn. Do you see that? Do you trust in that? That's the only thing that's going to restore your joy. That will restore your joy. That will remove the overworking tendency in our lives to be good for the sake of just getting God's favor because you can't. You're always going to overwork yourself. You see that? That is the blood that speaks out greater than the blood of Abel. First John chapter 1, verse 9 says that God is just on one hand, but he paid the debt of our sin by himself on the cross, on the other hand, for our sake. Do you see that? And because that debt is paid in full, Because that debt is paid in full, when it says that God is faithful and just, what the author is saying is that it would be Jesus is standing before God as our interceding on our behalf. And so on one hand, you see your sin he has covered over our sin. He has paid the price for our sins. So when Jesus is appealing to God, our Father, he's saying, you are the judge, but I am not appealing just on your love, although you are loving. I am not appealing just on your grace, although you are gracious. Do you know why he is loving? Do you know why he is gracious? He's saying, on the basis of your justice, because the debt has been paid, and you will never let anybody pay twice for the same sin. You are a just God. On the basis of your justice, I am appealing to you. The justice and the faithfulness and the love and the grace of God. Look at the gentleness of God. Look at the tenderness of God. Look at Jesus Christ on the cross. He says, Father, forgive them. That's what he's saying. That's why you know he wasn't sitting there with self pity and what was going on. He says, Father, forgive them. Do you see that? Look at the gentleness of God. Look at the grace of God. Look at the compassion of God at the canes of the world. That's going to shape the way you view the canes in your life. That's the, in our legal system, you can't, pay, you can't pay two sentences. We have a flawed legal system. You can't pay two sentences for the same crime. That would be unjust. Jesus Christ, appealing for the mercy of God, is appealing on the base of God's justice. If you look to the cross, that's why they say that is where mercy and justice meet and embrace. Do you see that? And he's doing that all the while staring at the canes of the world. It's going to change the way you view the canes of the world. Later on in this passage, towards the last several verses, even Cain got protection. Even Cain got God's protection. You're going to be able to look to the canes of the world and, you know, it's very easy to identify the canes of the world because they're the unhappy people at church. That's how you find them. They're the ones who are unhappy, okay? Look to the canes of the world. Instead of scoffing at them and mocking them, you will demonstrate love because nothing transforms us like the love and mercy of God demonstrated to us on the cross of Jesus Christ. Similarly, if you see other people passing ahead of you and you're starting to get envious and you're starting to get bitter and you're starting to feel that millennial sense of entitlement, right? To the degree you look at the cross, to the degree that you trust the gospel, you're going to embrace the people that surpass you. Because at the very heart of the gospel is what? A self-driven love says what? My advancement at your cost. I will step all over you to get ahead. But a gospel love, something that is supernatural, something that only God can do in your life, when the gospel takes uh, takes root in your life, it's going to become what? Your advancement at my cost. That's the tithe. That's the meaning of the tithe. That's why we make offerings. That's why we do that. To the degree that you look at the cross and trust the gospel, you will embrace the people that get ahead. You will learn from them and see how they got ahead. You will improve because you will be able to confront the weaknesses and the sins and the, not just the, the flaws, outward flaws in your life, but the deep-rooted flaws in your life. That's the end of je- jealousy, friends. That's the end of pride, friends. That's the end of snobbishness, friends. That's what it means to be a sinner, saved by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Let's pray.